Don't let God's sovereignty keep you from praying. And don't let God's sovereignty keep you from acting. God may choose to use both your prayers and your actions as the means to accomplish his sovereign plan, as clearly happened in Daniel's case. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Is there anything in your life that might be keeping you from prayer? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom brings you part five of a series titled 70 Years and 70 Weeks. It is easy to recognize that in life, perfection is just not possible. Even for believers, perfection is not possible, but it ought to be the direction of our life, and it ought to be the pursuit of your life. Daniel certainly was characterized by the pursuit of holiness. But as you'll discover today, if you keep unconfessed sin in your life, you can't expect that God will hear your prayers. However, if you confess your sins, then God does hear. So do you have any unrepentant sin in your life? Let's find out more now as we join Tom Pennington on The Word Unleashed. This week I read that Charles Schultz, the cartoonist, once drew a Peanuts cartoon in which Linus was trying to interpret a nursery rhyme. And Linus says to Charlie Brown, the way I see it, the cow jumped over the moon indicates rising farm prices. Linus then asks if Charlie agrees, and Charlie's response is this, I, I can't say, I don't pretend to be a student of prophetic literature. That's how many feel about the prophecy of Daniel's 70 weeks. They feel hopelessly confused, frankly at a loss to even know where to begin to interpret it. The good news is that Daniel himself, in this very chapter, gives us the hermeneutic or the method of interpretation by which we can interpret this prophecy. You remember early in the chapter, we looked at when he read Jeremiah's prophecy about the 70 years of Babylonian captivity, Daniel interpreted Jeremiah's prophecy assuming that 70 years should be interpreted as, well, 70 years. That's called a literal, grammatical, historical hermeneutic or method of interpretation. You interpret the Bible like you do all other normal literature. It means you take it literally unless there is evidence in the context to do otherwise. And so, that's exactly how we're going to approach the interpretation of the vision God gave Daniel. We're going to approach it the same way he approached the prophecy God gave Jeremiah and the way he interpreted it in his life. So, we're looking then at Daniel chapter 9. And in Daniel 9, God reveals this sweeping prophetic timeline of Israel's history from the time of Daniel to the very end of the age specifically concerning the Jewish people. The chapter unfolds in two parts. First of all, there is a prayer for the end of Israel's captivity. 
That's verses 1 to 19. We looked at the occasion of the prayer. Verse 1 says it was in the first year of Darius or the year 538 B.C. The reason for the prayer is in verse 2. Look at it with me. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. He says, I read in Jeremiah, who was a contemporary of his, by the way, an older contemporary, that the captivity would only last for 70 years. That was the the motivation, the reason behind his prayer. We looked in verse 3 at the attitudes of prayer betrayed in the way Daniel approached his own prayer. And then in verses 4 through 19, we considered the content of the prayer. It begins with adoration, then much of it is the confession of, his, of Daniel's own sin and the sin of his people. And then in verses 15 to 19, we get to the petition and specifically the petition for forgiveness and restoration. Just to confirm, the specific requests that Daniel has of God are, first of all, for the forgiveness of his people, and then their restoration, the restoration of Jerusalem, the restoration of the temple. And he gives God six arguments, if you will, six reasons that God should hear and respond to his prayer. I'm not going to go back through them except just to point them out to you again. Daniel says, God, you should respond, you should forgive, you should restore your people because of your past redemption, because of your perfect righteousness, because of the reproach your people bear, because of your own personal reputation for your namesake, O God, act, because of God's profound compassion. And then Daniel was aware of God's primary method, that God uses means. Daniel understood that God would accomplish his sovereign purpose by answering the prayers of his people, as is recorded in Jeremiah, and so Daniel prayed. The first half of this chapter, then, is a prayer for the end of Israel's captivity. The rest of the chapter, beginning in verse 20 through verse 27, is a vision of of the rest of Israel's history, a vision of the rest of Israel's history. Now, Daniel first deals with God's immediate answer to his prayer, and that has to do with the arrival of Gabriel. You know, I think we're prone when we come to prophecy to say, let's skip all this stuff and let's get to the prophecy. That's the really interesting stuff. It's interesting that Daniel spends as much time recording the coming of Gabriel and God's immediate response to him as he does on the prophecy itself, because there are some powerful lessons about God and ourselves to be learned here in these four verses. Let's look at them together. Notice, first of all, verse 20. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, that is a, that's a great summary of Daniel's prayer. In fact, all of the verbs in that verse have been used earlier in this chapter as Daniel was describing his prayer along the way. Verse 21, while I was still speaking in prayer. Daniel here wants us to get it. He is underscoring that this answer came from God before Daniel even finished praying. Why is that important? Because it tells us so much about our God. 
It tells us so much about his heart for his people. Daniel says, while I was still speaking in prayer. In fact, I have to stop here and draw out a couple of immediate lessons that just jump out at me from this passage. First of all, perfection is not possible in this life. If if you think that's where you're going to get in this life, you are going to be sadly disappointed. I mean, here is Daniel. Daniel is one of the greatest saints who ever lived. He is 82 years old at this point, and after 65-plus years walking with the Lord, he still could not say, as Proverbs 20 puts it, I have kept my heart pure, I am clean and without sin. Perfection is not possible in this life. Perfection is not possible, but it ought to be the direction of your life. It ought to be the pursuit of your life. We talk all the time about the fact that true sanctification, true holiness in this life is an increasing pattern of righteousness and a decreasing pattern of sin. That's what the Lord expects of us. A decreasing pattern of sin and an increasing pattern of righteousness. Daniel certainly was characterized by that, but not by perfection. There's a second sort of lesson that jumps out at me already in verses 20 and the first part of verse 21, and that is sinlessness is not a condition of answered prayer, but confession is. Let me say that again. Sinlessness is not a condition of answered prayer, but confession of sin is. That's why Isaiah the prophet writes in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. If you keep unconfessed sin in your life, if you're walking in unconfessed, unrepentant sin, then you cannot expect that God will hear your prayers. However, if we confess our sins, then God does hear. Calvin, as he considered Daniel's confession here, wrote this in his commentary. He said, this then, I love this, This then is our righteousness, to confess ourselves guilty in order that God may gratuitously absolve us. Let me say that again because that's profound. This is our righteousness, to confess ourselves guilty in order that God may gratuitously absolve us. Calvin goes on in his commentary to mention the prayer of confession that Christ taught us to pray in the disciples' prayer. It's often called the Lord's Prayer. You remember, forgive us our, what? Our debts. Forgive us our debts. Lord, forgive us our sins. Calvin comments on that, and this is what he says. For whom did Christ wish to use this petition? Surely all his disciples If anyone thinks that he has no need of this form of prayer and confession of sin, let him depart from the school of Christ and enter into a herd of swine. You get the message. There's a a third lesson here before we go on, and that is, and I love this, God is profoundly concerned about the needs of his children and responds to their prayer. 
I love, and I, it's a verse I go to often in my own mind and, and as I think about prayer. It's 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, where it says, Cast all your care upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. Listen, if it's a concern to you, it's a concern to God. These are amazing truths. But let's go on. Verse 21. While I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness. Gabriel here is called a man because he appeared in human masculine form. That's the way angels typically appear to human beings. Daniel reminds us that it was Gabriel who visited him in the vision previously. That's back in chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. And by the way, that was 13 years before. You know, those who think that, you know, visions and dreams occur all the time, here's a prophet of God. And there was 13 years between the previous vision and this one that he receives. Now, in our New American Standard translation, Daniel says, notice, that Gabriel came to me in my extreme weariness. If you have an ESV, an English Standard Version, you will see that they have another reading. The ESV says, Gabriel came to me in swift flight. Now, that reading, let me just tell you, is based on conjecture about the Hebrew root verb, while the NAS translation is based upon the established meaning of the Hebrew words. In addition, let me just say that Scripture describes two classes of heavenly beings, cherubs and seraphs, as having wings but, and a flying, but Scripture nowhere says that all angels have wings. In fact, Daniel here specifically says, Gabriel appeared in the form of a man. Men don't typically have wings unless they're in Marvel movies. <laughs> Literally, the, the Hebrew says, having been wearied with weariness. Now, that's obviously not referring to Gabriel. It has to describe Daniel, and that makes perfect sense. I mean, remember back in verse 3, Daniel has to be completely exhausted because he's been in an intense, ongoing time of prayer and of fasting. Verse 21 says, the man Gabriel came to me Notice this, about the time of the evening offering. The time of the evening offering was about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Daniel was praying at the time of the sacrifice because that was the normal Jewish practice. For example, in Ezra 9.5, at the evening offering, I arose from my humiliation, even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord God. Psalm 141, verse 2 says, May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands at the evening offering, or as the evening offering. Why was prayer typically offered by the Jewish people in conjunction with sacrifice? You see that even in New Testament times, right? In Acts chapter 3, they go up at the time of the sacrifice to pray. Why are the two conjoined? It's because... There is an acknowledgement in it that there really can be no prayer to God without the forgiveness of sins. And so prayer and sacrifice often went together. Now, I want you to think again about the timing of Daniel's prayer. It's the time of the evening sacrifice. 
Does that strike you as strange? I mean, think about this for a moment. It's been almost 50 years since the temple has been destroyed and the last evening sacrifice had been made. 50 years. It's been 70 years since Daniel was able to be at the temple as a young teenager and to worship at the time of the evening sacrifice. And yet, 70 years after that experience, 50 years after the temple had been destroyed, Daniel is still commemorating the evening sacrifice. Even though actual sacrifice was impossible, the attitude of Daniel's heart was clear. For 70 years, he had observed the hour of sacrifice in his heart. That's absolutely remarkable, and it's also the essence of true biblical faith. It also points out, by the way, that the blood sacrifices were only symbolical and not in and of themselves efficacious. God saw the heart first and then the sacrifice. Dale Ralph Davis writes, at the time of the evening sacrifice, that phrase reveals far more than Daniel's ability to tell time. It is packed with years of yearning and longing and affection for Yahweh's ordinances, a passion for the means of grace, of true Jerusalem worship. And then he adds this, sometimes what may seem incidental reveals a soul thirsting after God. Daniel was praying at the time of the evening sacrifice, and it was at that time that Gabriel came to him. Verse 22, he, that is Gabriel, gave me instruction and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. Gabriel had come to help Daniel understand God's plan for his people. Verse 23, at the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Everything about that just excites me. I absolutely love that. You know, this, this opening phrase, at the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, it immediately reminded me when I read it again of the prodigal son. You remember, he, he's in the distant country. He squandered everything. He rehearses the speech he's going to deliver to the father representing God, and, and he gets to the Father, and he starts his speech, but immediately the Father has an answer. He stops him in the middle of his request and says, here's what we're going to do. That's exactly what happens here. At the beginning of his prayer, notice the command was issued. Obviously, God is the one who issued the command. In other words, God's great heart was touched by Daniel's humble, sincere heart, even as he began to pray. And of course, God already knew what his request was going to be. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. The fact that Gabriel said, notice verse 23, that he had come, I have come to tell you, implies that this wasn't just a vision, but that Gabriel actually came this time in person. Think about that. God heard Daniel begin to pray, and he immediately sent one of his most powerful angels, Gabriel, whose name means the mighty one, the mighty one of God. 
He sends him with an answer. Gabriel explains why he was sent. Notice, for you are highly esteemed. The same expression is used of Daniel in Daniel chapter 10, verses 11 and 19. The Hebrew word highly is, is not in the Hebrew. Instead, it's a, it's a translation of the fact that the word for esteemed is plural. Hebrew has this thing. When it wants to stress something, it makes the word plural. And that's what you have here. In other words, what he's saying is, Daniel, you are not only esteemed, you are esteemed and esteemed. You are esteemed again and again. You are considered to be of great value. This Hebrew term is used of gold in Ezra chapter 8. God considered Daniel to be of great value to him, not because he deserved it, but because God had set his love upon Daniel and made him an object of his care, just as he has us. One commentator writes, Daniel was considered to be a very precious treasure to the Lord, as are all of God's children. He loves them greatly. Can you let it settle in your soul for a moment? If you're a a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have repented and believed in him, God, the eternal creator God, loves you and considers you a great treasure to himself. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, God himself calls us his own possession. And he doesn't mean by that you're like a thing to him. He means you're his special treasure. It's amazing. And if that weren't enough to ensure God's eager response to our prayers, we are his own possession just like Daniel was. We are precious to God. We are his treasure. If that isn't enough, then add this to it. We also have a great high priest, God's own son, who intercedes for us in the presence of the Father. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says of Christ, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Really, believer, you don't think God's going to hear your prayer when you are highly esteemed as Daniel was, not because of you, but because of God's choice and decision, because he set his love upon you, because The Son is there in the presence of the Father pleading on your behalf. You really think that God's going to ignore you or does ignore you? Gabriel continues, verse 23, So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Now, there's a very interesting thing that goes on here. In verse 22, there's divine responsibility to give insight with understanding. Now, in Daniel's case, Gabriel shows up. That doesn't happen for us. In our case, we depend on God's written revelation and the Spirit's illumination of that revelation. So there's the divine responsibility to give us written revelation and to give us His Spirit to help us understand it. But notice in verse 23, Gabriel underscores the human responsibility, give heed to the message and gain understanding. The Hebrew verb there has the idea of giving one's full attention to this. Daniel, you're going to have to give your full attention to this revelation to understand it. 
Folks, the same thing is true for us. If you want to understand the Bible, you must give heed to its message. You have to focus your attention on what it says in order to understand what it means. Even though God has given you the written revelation and he's given you the Spirit to grant you illumination, to understand and grasp it. He's not going to do that by magic. He's not going to sprinkle you with some divine hermeneutic dust that enables you to get it. In fact, Dale Ralph Davis says, I love this, the gifts of God are not excuses for laziness, but demands for sweat. The gifts of God are not excuses for sloth, but demands for sweat. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of a series titled 70 Years and 70 Weeks. Tom will have part six for you next time, and we hope you'll join us then. Does the Bible speak about the government and structure of the church? In his book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, Tom Pennington presents in-depth evidence from Scripture to show that God intends every local church to be governed by a plurality of godly men. In an age where a biblical ecclesiology is often neglected, it is critical to recapture what the Bible teaches about the structure of the church. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.